2: Welcome to the Curzon Podcast. This is a special episode to mark the re-release of Howard's End and we are here with our guest Samuel West. Hello. Is it Sam or Samuel?
1: Sam in person and Samuel West in credits.
2: So we go with Sam. We go with Sam. Great. Um, often actors, sometimes director, always geek is Sam West's <laughs> Twitter biography. Um, he was born in London. He's the child and grandchild of actors. He studied English literature at Oxford and then he embarked on a very successful stage, screen and radio career, which I see him play leading roles such as Hamlet and Richard III at the RSC. Sorry, Richard Richard II. II. Well
1: done, you corrected yourself. Um,
2: I even saw that. I queued from 4 o'clock in the morning to get tickets for the last performance of that and it was wonderful. Mm. Um, He also starred in Tom Stoppard's original production of Arcadia at the National Theatre. And he took up many roles in some of the nation's favourite TV series, including Midsummer Murders, Poirot, and recently Mr Selfridge, and Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell. And he even performed the Last Night of the Proms. Mm, in
1: 2002 I did.
2: Excellent. Uh, we haven't even mentioned in passing that he's also a director, as his uh, uh, tutor bio says, and he was artistic director of Sheffield Theatres uh, for three years.
1: Two seasons. So Two So three seasons, years in total, yeah.
2: Where he revived Howard Branton's controversial play, The Romans in Britain. Um, so am I right in thinking that Howard's End was your feature film debut?
1: Not quite. It, I did one film before uh, called Reunion, which went to the Cannes Film Festival, and also a little one in French called Archipel, which nobody's ever seen, oh, but right. this was my first big film.
2: How old were you at the time?
1: I remember celebrating my 25th birthday on set, so I must have been 24.
2: That's amazing. So, Howard's End is the film that we're here to talk about today. it was directed by James Ivory and produced by his longtime partner Ismail Merchant, uh, who sadly passed away um, recently. It was one of the most successful films out of the whopping 24 films that they made together mm-hmm. as Merchant Ivory, which truly established a global reputation as a production house specialised in sumptuous period dramas. Um, on its original release in 1992, Howard's End played at Curzon Cinemas for 54 uninterrupted weeks. <laughs> which I think is the record for any film. It's remarkable. Yeah, 34 of those weeks were occurs on Mayfair, where the film is returning this summer in a beautiful 4K restored version courtesy of a BFI. So, Howard's End is the story of three families from different economic backgrounds. is set in London and their fortunes are interwoven uh, against the backdrop of class difference and essentially what was a housing crisis in 1910. Um, but I want to travel back uh, to, to the time when the film was made. So it's 1991. Mm-hmm. How does Sam West, age 24 or maybe 25, recent graduate and early career stage and film actor, get the part of Leonard Bust in Merchant Ivory's upcoming production of Howard's End?
1: It's a very good question. Looking at it now, I mean, I Leonard is a lower middle class clerk. And I've never really played anybody else lower middle class. It's still the... F- Film that most people have seen me in, so it's not really typecasting. I think nowadays I wouldn't be seen for that role.
2: It's it is striking. You sound very much working class in the film, and I was very surprised to hear this some West voice. Cause well, I grew like, up in
1: South London, oh, and, ah, and if I go good. and watch my football team, I still talk like that. So, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, actors should strive to be classless. I think absolutely. And a lot of Leonard's background is very similar to mine, at least in place um, and um, and and in sound some of the time, but. Uh, I auditioned. I I was lucky enough to have an agent who knew I loved the book. And I auditioned twice, I think. Um, I don't remember having a screen test. I think I must have met James two or three times. And I know that when it came down to the final choice, there were only two of us. Because I know who the other actor was, who shall have to remain nameless. (laughs) But I owe him a drink. And um, he, he... he was pleased that I knew the book uh, and uh, made sense of the character, I suppose, and um, yeah, I was offered it. I knew and had worked with Helena uh, in a play at university, so that might have been something that got me in, in the first place, because she'd obviously worked with Jim before on um, Room with the View.
2: This is Helena Bonham Carter, Sorry, Helena Bonham who, Carter plays... Yes,
1: who plays um, Helen Schlegel. Confusingly, who is one of these two sisters, you mentioned three families, so we've got the Schlegels, who are liberal, um, nowadays you'd call them feminist, blue-stocking, um, um, liberated women. Of in European in origin? A, a German, and proud of it. Uh, a, a Countrymen of, of um, Goethe and Schiller, and, um, and very much given to uh, culture in all its forms, and, and driven and excited by that. And then you have the Wilcoxes, um, Mrs. Wilcox played by Vanessa Redgrave, Mr. Wilcox played by Anthony Hopkins, and their two sons, one of whom Helen briefly falls in love with at a sort of house party. And the Wilcoxes are in, in business, uh, and, and except Mrs. Wilcox, who is sort of in a world of her own, mm-hmm. and she owns this house called Howards End. And she is dying. And Margaret, who meets her through Helen's uh, involvement with the younger Wilcox son, and uh, Margaret and Mrs. Wilcox become friends, and she, Margaret visits Howard End. And on her deathbed, am I allowed to say this? You can cut it out if this spoiler is spoiler alert. Stick, spoiler alert. On her deathbed, Mrs. Wilcox writes a short note saying, I would like Miss Schlegel brackets Margaret to have Howard's end and the Wilcoxes go what well, is that legally binding come on that's mm-hmm. ridiculous she was out of her mind and, and they decide not that it shouldn't happen um, but the connection between the families is made and eventually Margaret and Mr Wilcox the widower marry.
2: This is about 25 minutes of a film,
1: isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, lots happen. <laughs> yes. And uh, and then we discover that a third family called the Basts, Jackie and Leonard, played by me, uh, have a connection with the Wilcoxes because Jackie Wilcox, before she was married, had an affair with Henry, mm-hmm. Mr Wilcox, who now has married Margaret. And... Um, we find ourselves at their wedding party, and Mr. Wilcox thinks that Margaret has done this thing on purpose, uh, which is not true. And they argue. And meanwhile, Leonard, separated from Jackie, has met Helen, who is still interested in him. It's a long story as how they get involved, mm-hmm. and they sleep together, and Helen becomes pregnant. And the final circle of the full of the full turn is that. Helen, uh, Leonard is, is killed by Charles Wilcox, the older Wilcox son, uh, who goes to prison. And the younger... So and Helen has a baby who she calls Leonard and he inherits the house. So there is a... Oh, but he doesn't... He, we think he inherits the house. So there is a, a sort of... If you call it a housing crisis, I mean, there is a... Uh, the, the central character is the house, mm-hmm. which incidentally doesn't have an apostrophe. <laughs> it, Absolutely. Doesn't, it doesn't belong to Howard, it's just the name of <laughs> Um and, and the house is very, very important to Mrs Wilcox and becomes very important to Margaret. And that's where L- Leonard is killed and his illegitimate child ends up owning it. So there is obviously an argument about land and about housing to be had and about class to be had through this extraordinarily complicated interweaving of the three families.
2: Do you think there's also a sense of um, a house uh, becoming a home once it means something to people and then eventually these people who do inherit the house become its real owners and become the soul of it?
1: I think it's hard to say that Mrs. Wilcox didn't inhabit it. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure Mr. Wilcox and the other Wilcox children did quite, but Mrs. Wilcox, when we first meet her, in, in the in the book and also in this beautiful shot in the film which is I think the first shot of the film of Vanessa walking over the yes. the, um, the, the wet lawn and pulling the dew up with her her skirt of her dress uh, she is basically associated with the house and, and is it really um, and um, she feels something for it that she thinks only Margaret will understand mm. and gradually, Eventually, I think Margaret comes to understand it. But yes, Forster is very um, supportive of that identification with the place you were born. I mean, the Wilcoxes lose their house because the, the lease runs out. And Helen and Margaret and, and Mrs. Wilcox during one of their days out in London, she says, I'm, we're going to lose our house. And, and, and Mrs., Mrs. Wilcox says, oh, how terrible. And Margaret says, oh, well, now we can get another one. And she says, yes, but not, 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 not the house you grew up in, not the house you were born in. That—that that You can only ever, you know, have that one. And she seems to feel it deeper than, than well, it's like running through her like, like seaside rock. Mm-hmm. And Margaret goes, oh, is that what houses are? And, and sort of seems to learn from Mrs Wilcox a little bit about, about the, um, the identification with this central character, you know, which is the house. Um, so it's quite hard to make a, a film in which the central character doesn't speak, but somehow it, it sort of does speak, and it is there, and it's it's very beautiful.
2: It also <laughs> appears quite rarely the house, the actual Howard's End. There are lots of other interiors, lots of other homes, lots of other houses. Yes. But you see Howard's End only at crucial moments. And interestingly, you mentioned the opening shots with Vanessa Redgrave walking through the lawn, and that's replicated later when Emma Thompson's character, Margaret, finally does get to Howard's End, for the first time, yes. and she does the exact same walk, and she it's does. almost as a yes. Finally, you know, this house is where it belongs with the person yes. in it that that belongs in it. So.
1: There are, there's a there's a story that they're told that there are um, teeth, pig's teeth, in a particular um, tree, a horse chestnut tree. Although in the book it's an elm, of course there aren't any <laughs> elms anymore, so you have to change it. But there was this huge horse chestnut in the in the in the foot of the garden and Margaret looks for the teeth and and finds them. And I think nobody else really believes the story. But mm. she finds them and goes, OK, so that's, that's I'm, I'm meant to be here somehow, you know. That's part she, of me now.
2: She mentions it to Mr Wilcox and he doesn't even know the He's story. never heard the story. He's never heard the story.
1: Yes, that's a very telling moment.
2: Yes, it's almost as though the two women are actually sharing some secrets that the men don't know.
1: Well, that sense of sharing across boundaries. I mean, famously, this is the book where the phrase only connect, which is now, you know, brilliantly famous and successful Quiz show. Um, but uh, but originally is mentioned for the first time in this book. Uh, in fact, it's that it's the it's the motto of the book, isn't it? It's actually underneath um, the title in the in the first edition. And uh, Forster's point is that I think men in particular are, and men in business in particular, are very good at compartmentalizing things and not making connections between um, well, um, their actions and their consequences, perhaps, mm-hmm. would be the nicest way of putting it. And, uh, and the women conversely do that across class and across, um, and across time uh, and generations and across houses in this case.
2: Where did you encounter Ian Forster's book for the first time and is there something in his work that particularly attracted you to, to work here?
1: It was, I'm, I'm, ash- I'm ashamed to say it was my favourite novel it's um, it's too wonderful when you meet a book. I was a fifteen-year-old sort of left-leaning, mm. um, vaguely hippie-ish student, and it completely knocked me sideways, as it still does. A lot of fifteen-year-old, mm. vaguely left-leaning people, um, I found Forster's sort of quiet, g- grey politics, as in not sort of black and white, uh, very, very powerful, and and also moments where he would just come out of the book and say you know this is what i think and so should you because i think i'm right uh, and i was captivated by the book and, and read it um many times and then yeah extraordinarily luckily had the chance to be in it i mean i think n- knowing a book very well is not always a good idea when <laughs> you're in an adaptation of something but in this case if you've got ruth progerbala writing the screenplay you, you know you know it's going to be it's going to be a version as as any version has to be, but it's going to be a good one.
2: You also have a part in a film called Carrington, which is about um, Dora Carrington and Lytton Strachey, 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 uh, who were friends with Forster, and they were all part of the Bloomsbury group, which included Virginia Woolf, famously. Um, So I I guess you're attracted to literary work.
1: Well, again, I was just very lucky to be in that. And also the second time I worked with Emma Thompson. I count myself Mm -hmm. extremely lucky to have done two films with Emma and I hope might do another in in the course of time. But, yeah, two enormously enjoyable jobs um, at the very beginning of my career.
2: Excellent. So I wanted to talk a little bit, actually, about Emma Thompson and about the extraordinary awards journey of the film Mm. because Howard's End was nominated for nine Oscars Mm -hmm. Uh, it won three, including yep. Best Actress for Emma Thompson, mm-hmm. and it was her first Oscar win. Mm-hmm. Um, she went on to win an Oscar for Best uh, Screenplay. She's for still a, the only person to,
1: to win a, as a writer and a performer.
2: absolutely extraordinary, absolutely. I think. Uh, and uh, Howard end also won Best Screenplay and Best Art Direction. Mm-hmm. And it was also nominated for 11 BAFTAs, including Best Film and, again, Best Actress for Emma Thompson. And you were also nominated for a BAFTA. I was. And I was wondering how you experienced this successful journey of this film and whether the awards context was as much of a circus as it feels like these days or what did it mean at the time
1: I worked with Glenda Jackson on a radio play recently and she, she told me that um, she discovered that the second time she won a Golden Globe was when she opened the Hollywood Reporter and it was on the inside page on <laughs> page three she'd won a Golden Globe the pre- previous night and I said that is incomprehensible to me It's like no oh, it was very nice you know Lovely to read that in the paper. But there was no ceremony and she hadn't been invited or that they had and she hadn't gone or whatever.
2: What year was this? Oh, oh. Uh, it was
1: 1970 sometime. Wow. Uh, the BAFTA that I was nominated for um, was, uh, I, I lost to Gene Hackman, which was wonderful to, 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 <laughs> lose, to lose to him in Unforgiven. If you have um, to lose to someone. Yeah, exactly, right, and okay. uh, and I went to the BAFTAs, but they weren't on television then. Mm. And, um, and when the film came out, I didn't work for about four months. So you know, it was nice to get the recognition, and uh, I'm. It, it's not really about the the awards, although I'm really pleased that Emma won because I think it's a great performance, and I'm delighted that Luciana Rigi, who designed the film, um, got got a, a an Oscar for art direction. There's one particular moment. and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Where I just thought, oh, this is really classy. In our flat, the Basques live in a little flat that was filmed in near Borough Market, a um, tiny little place that really hadn't been redecorated since probably the book when the book was set in about 1908 and there's a shop where a train goes past and you can see Jackie in my bed and uh, they do the they do the train with that old sort of Arnold Ridley ghost train thing of, of a, a rotating triangular pillar covered in mirrors that you shine a a spotlight on, and they spin it, and the, the train things seem to go past the window, and that was really simple, and that worked. And you put the noise of a train on afterwards. But the moment that I that I love, that I have to point out to people, is that Jackie, who has had a past as a prostitute and um, uh, is now of the age where she thinks, you know, is my skin still good? <laughs> uh, dyes her hair, and rather than just go to, uh, you know, get the get the hair done. Uh, modern, in a modern way, um, the, the the production design and the makeup and hair said "Okay, what should, would she have done as a woman in 1908. Um, so she bleaches it and then she turns it yellow with turmeric, wow. which is what people use to make mm. blonde. And if you look very, very carefully in that scene you can see the stain of yellow from the turmeric on her hair on her pillow.
2: What an amazing touch!
1: Yeah, well, that's how you win Oscars for production Absolutely. design. Absolutely,
2: <laughs> that's very impressive. Do you have any other very vivid memories from the set, or any stories that you can share with us from um, that time?
1: I remember there's a scene where I have to go to the house to try and find Helen, and um, who um, you know knows at the time carrying my child without me knowing, and uh, we, I we, I got off the train and walked up to the. Station master, who was an extra and didn't have any lines, and um, I said, I'm looking for a house called uh, Howard's House. And he said, Howard's End, sir. Yes, uh, straight up first on the left, you can't miss it, two stories, uh, eight windows. I said, that's, that's, and the James said, cut. I said, That's a very good description. How did you know? He said, Read the book, didn't I?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Another fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: very good. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was. It was a very happy shoot. I remember I did 28 days on it um, uh, uh, over a few months, and then we did a reshoot at the end. There was a little bit more of the Helen Leonard story. So there's a scene where I'm walking down uh, a road flapping on a very hot day just before I get killed, where I'm extremely tanned because I'd done another film in between and it doesn't match up at all Um, nowadays they just digitally change the colour of my skin but the reshoots went well and it was very nice to be told after the shoot that they liked what we were doing and they wanted to do more of that so there's a little bit more of of Helen and and Leonard Um, but yeah one of the very happiest jobs I've ever done
2: That's great. Um, Leonard, you mentioned, is a keen walker. He does a lot of walking. And I I know from following you on Twitter that you are a huge nature lover. Mm. Um, So we can't really get away without talking about my favorite scene in the film, which is the Um, bluebells. Yes.
1: There's an interesting story behind that. (laughs)
2: Excellent. Well, we (laughs) want to hear all about that. And I wonder if you can also talk a bit about Leonard's relationship with nature and why does he have this gorgeous scene in the middle of a film that could be so urban?
1: Well, Leonard is a clerk in a central London insurance office. Um, I, uh, there's one thing I did, actually, that I hadn't thought of for years and years as part of my preparation for the role. It sounds very grand to call it preparation for the role, but I grew one of my thumbnails because clerks used to have long thumbnails to help them count things. Oh. And I thought, well, nobody ever noticed. notice. But actually, when, when I get the card uh, from Helen Schlegel, There's a close-up of my thumbnail, which is really long. So I managed to get into the film, so that's um, that's a nice, if you think, why is his thumbnail so long? That's because... There you are. Uh, So Leonard famously, uh, in the book, decides to go walking one night. He presumably takes the tube out to the end of the district line, something like Wimbledon, which would have been a village at the time, and then just walks on the South Downs or just keeps going. he doesn't really know where he's going and he forgets to bring any food he's got a packet of cigarettes to make you know stave off the, the hunger pains and there's it's a very important moment for him uh, not because it's magnificent but because because he does it he doesn't really expect to find anything magnificent and he, and he doesn't and then through an action, a strange action of losing his umbrella and going back to the Schlegels house to pick it up, he gets into conversation with them and and um and they talk about this journey that he's taken. And it's really the making of Leonard because he, he he's he's got all these pretensions about you know wanting to be accepted in polite society. And he's the descendant of agricultural labourers and he doesn't really belong in that society. And suddenly he realises that and he drops all the pretension. And there's this wonderful conversation where uh, he says, yes, I walked all night. And and one of the sisters says, and did you see the dawn? He says, yes, suddenly it got light. And the other one says, and was it magnificent? And Forster says, with unforgettable sincerity, Leonard said, no, it was only grey. And suddenly, all the pretension drops off him, and they see the dignity of the man, and the, the, you know what Forster calls the spine that might have been straight. You know, swapped mm. the dignity of the animal for a tailcoat and a couple of ideas. It's a brilliant phrase. And um, and so we played this scene, uh, and and it was really important because they go, there's something about this man. They they get interested in him, which turns out to be fatal. Uh, but they want to know him again, and and um, and then we did the walk. We filmed the walk, and I and I walked through these extraordinary bluebells. And this was the only time that James Ivory and I ever had what uh, sort of a, um, amounted to a, a disagreement, because I said, um, Jim, I, I've, I've got this line, you know, where she says, "Was it magnificent?" and I say, "No." And it's really important that it shouldn't be magnificent. And yet I'm walking through these extraordinary, <laughs> it's not just the most beautiful thing I've ever done in a film, but possibly the most beautiful thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> uh, and he said, oh, but it has to be beautiful. Otherwise, where are we? And, um, and it's become a really iconic image of, of the film. And um, so you know that, that was just one way of looking at that scene. That you know, we had these amazing carpet of bluebells just behind the, the the house in in Oxfordshire, uh, and they they were out in April, and he said, "Look, we're going to shoot," and we went and we shot, and and the rest is history, as it were. But um, but it doesn't really make sense of Leonard saying it was only dull. <laughs> so um, yeah, we had a disagreement about that, but I'm very glad we did because it's a beautiful moment.
2: Excellent. So the it's interesting that you say. Um, about how you know he decides to drop his pretensions because then what what i think helen says to him is were you following your ancestors were you trying to go somewhere in rural nature and find yourself there and obviously that's a completely romanticized idea about this man that she has yes she's probably picked it up from literature yes
1: well i mean when they when they when they get into the boat they they have this moment where um you know the, where the child is conceived after the wedding where leonard goes off and helen goes with her and and, and, and she says, You know, you're not just that. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're culture and ideas. And, and he says, No, that's for rich people to make them feel good after their dinner. It's an absolutely clear sighted, cold I, thing of, You know, this is, this is not my world and you don't know. It's a very interesting moment in the book where he's, he's trying to, he's reading Ruskin, who's got this beautiful mm-hmm. prose style. And he tries to copy Ruskin and describe you know, his flat and and he decides it doesn't work and that the phrase for his flat is his flat was dark as well as stuffy. And I remember I remember thinking I trust Forster now. I trust him because he put stuff in like that. And I trust Leonard actually. Um, Playing Leonard was really interesting because I'm not sure in the book that Forster quite knows who he is. He knows who he represents. You know, he's a man on the edge of an abyss who falls into it and is killed and you know we know those people and there are just as many of them as there were then um, and the question is what does society do about them I and mean, Mr Wilcox famously says the poor are poor one is sorry for them but there it is and I, I think that's not too far away from current government policy about people like that um, which you know is a bit depressing given that it's hundred and something years since but um I think, I think Leonard stands for something in the book, which Forster didn't know quite as well as he thought he did. So embodying somebody like that and having to play him and make sense of him um, was really a, a nice challenge. And on the whole, people seem to think that, you know, he became a real person and I'm very proud of that.
2: You mentioned something that James Ivory said to you, it has to be beautiful. Mm. This sentence to me describes his cinema. It has to be beautiful. Everything in his films looks absolutely sumptuous, mm. and we mentioned the production design by Luciana Rigi, mm. uh, the costumes by Jenny Bevan, mm. even, Bevan, yeah. who is now you know double triple Oscar winner, yes, an incredible. absolutely incredible talent, and everything in his films looks so opulent. But I've actually h- heard recently that Merchant Ivory, in fact, worked with very small budgets. They oh, yes. relied on the kindness of friends. Yeah, they both the, um,
1: most of the stuff that Luciana puts in the back of any posh. Uh, Posh interior is borrowed. It's, <laughs> it's not amazing. About to touch it.
2: It's amazing. Well, that's, I mean, that's how
1: producers work. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Ismail was 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 famously um, he would he would grin and nod happily if you called him a rogue, but um, you know that sort of that that sort of um, hand to mouth existence that said you know we have some rich friends who might lend us a, book, a couple of statuettes and we're going to film <laughs> the fuck out of them. You know, let's uh, let's see what we can get. How, let's see what, what we can get out of them. Uh, is exactly how you have to make films if you're not making them with you know major studios.
2: Yeah, so filmmakers look for budget, go and find some posh friends. Yeah, but I think, I think it's stuff.
1: important we say something else about Jim because you know his films are are beautiful, and that the BBC are just about to make a, 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 well, have just made a television adaptation of of Howard's End, and I think it's it's going to be a different way of telling the story. I think Jim's version is about the relationships and less about the politics and now possibly there'll be more about the politics and less about the relationships but but there is something about James Ivory's eye which it's important is not just beautiful um, I remember another film I admire hugely is Vim Bender's Paris, Texas and Vin, Vim Bender's of course is, is not from Texas or indeed America and he used to be asked when he was filming on location where he was from and he always used to say Europe rather than, you know, Germany. Um, And he didn't need to say anything more. They were happy with the fact that he had an outside eye that gave him a slightly sort of, not exactly skewed, but side-headed, turned eye on on this rather odd country. And I think Jim has the same. I mean, of course he he sees England with great affection, but he isn't English, Mm. and he's also able to see... A lot of the structures, which we're too buried in, I mean, you know, a brilliant description of being British is that you have to live according to a set of rules, only nobody tells you what they are. Um, And I think Jim maybe sees them a bit more clearly and sees their ridiculousness a bit more clearly and is able to pick out, you know, their beauty and their history and also their stupidity because he's American and he's got this outside eye.
2: You mentioned the politics in mm. the film, and it's, it's always very tempting to think of costume dramas as completely detached mm. from our lives, you know, mm. almost like a, a brand of fantasy films. They can also be very conservative as a genre, but where do you see the politics of the film, and what do you think it, it, Howard's End can say to us in 2017?
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure that conservatives and left-wingers alike would agree that it has something to say about social mobility and how the Wilcoxes believe that social mobility is a mistake uh, and that, you know, as as Mr Wilcox says, the poor are poor, one is sorry for them but there it is and that, you know, people are in certain classes for certain reasons and uh, one can treat them well Uh, one can tip them, for instance, which Mr Wilcox says, you know, tip everywhere that's my motto uh, but one doesn't really want to tip them so much that they have so much money that they could move out of their situation and, and become one's neighbours. And uh, indeed, when they try, they get killed, which is what happens to Leonard. You know, he he's mixed up with the Schlegels because he loses an umbrella. He engenders a child with one of them, and he's murdered. And um, you know, is saying he's not saying stay where you are, lower classes. He's saying just. You know, this is this is the thing that comes to bear on somebody who tries to move, and I'm not sure that really has changed very much. I think we still see an underclass. You know, we're four weeks today away from the Grenfell Tower fire, which is in North Kensington, um, and in South Kensington, the same bit of the same constituency. You know, that that the idea that you would clad your home in flammable cladding in order to save a few hundred thousand pounds is absolutely unthinkable um, so that division exists you know down the road um, and so in this case I think the story is not particularly conservative I don't think the filmmaking is as radical as possibly it might be telling that story but uh, I think it's I think Ruth's script is very sensitive to those um, to those beliefs and and honours Forster's, you know, vaguely left leaning belief that things should be more equal and people should be more mobile.
2: Well that's an excellent place to end it with some idealism, optimism and hope for the future. Howard's End is re released by the BFI in a stunning 4K restoration. I've just seen it on a big screen. It's amazing. Uh, It's on uh, Friday, 28th of July. You will see it occurs in Mayfair, and you absolutely should, particularly if it's your first time watching this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you are a returning viewer, I absolutely encourage you to see it. Uh, Sam West, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you 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 so much for your time. Pleasure. Cheers. Bye.